that make sense? And that's exactly what Carlton preached last week. Because we are dead to sin and alive to God, we do not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, nor do we present our members to sin as instruments or weapons for unrighteousness. There is a holy war happening, and we must engage. We already know that we will win. Scripture tells us that. Victory does not hang in the balance, but we must fight. Christians, don't forget that this is not your home. This means that you don't have the luxury of living with a peacetime mentality. We are at war. That's the truth. So let me be very, very clear about this. If you're not waging war against sin because of your confidence in Jesus' victory over it, you miss the point. And you could actually find yourself in danger of hell. Listen to 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge sojourners and exiles of the flesh which wage war against your soul. If your theology sin, do I need to pick up the mic? Yes? Sorry about that. Let me state that again. If your theology does not fuel your fight against sin, then you have bad theology. But let me go to the other ditch and be just as clear. If you think your zeal and fight against sin is going to win the day, then you are going to be very miserable. Listen to Galatians 3. Paul says, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Church, living under a curse is not good. So for those of you who would lean towards great zeal in fighting against sin... Please make sure that your fight is not devoid of the knowledge of the crucified Christ on your behalf, who is your righteousness. God's word is good. When we understand it correctly, it refreshes our soul. It balances us. It gives us clarity and hope. With that being said, let's look now at our text this morning, beginning with verse 14. Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to continue in sin? Or are we to sin, I'm sorry, because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The end of Paul's imperative statements, he reminds us once again that sin will have no dominion over us because we're not under the law, but we are under grace. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, in Galatians 3.23, Paul writes that before the faith came, we were all held captive under the law. It says that we were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In the 1500s, John Calvin wrote, about the threefold use of the law. The first use of the law was to show us God's perfect righteousness so brightly and so clearly that our condemnation becomes obvious because we see, church, we are not like him. In the words of Isaiah, woe is me. I am lost. I am ruined. I am undone before God. God's law shines forth God's holy character in a way that wholly obliterates all humanity. This is what it means to be under the law. You have no hope. And to think that you can have hope by ascending God's mountain of righteousness and fulfilling the requirements of the law is complete foolishness. Worse, it's a complete rejection of Jesus. So, church, you are not under the law, but you are under grace. This means that Jesus has ascended the mountain for you. And after he ascended, he laid himself down as a sacrifice. But then he rose from the dead, and in his resurrection, he has inseparably enjoined himself with you and now gives you credit for all of his accomplishments. This credit is also known as grace. And this credit, this grace, it cannot be lost. It cannot be sinned away. Church, there is no tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword that can cause you to lose this grace. <laughs> Neither death, nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can take this grace from you. This credit of righteousness, this grace is ours forever and evermore. It's good news. So now with this spectacular news given to us in verse 14, Paul asks the question that some of you are already asking in your mind. When you hear this too good to be true gospel, he asks in verse 15, well, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now, here's what you got to understand. The, the people who always stood in opposition to the gospel, 
that Paul preached were conservative by nature and very religious. And one of the main reasons they opposed his message was because in their minds, if you don't bind someone with rules and a fear of punishment, then they won't have an incentive to do right. And if they don't have an incentive to do right, then they'll look just like the world. So in verse 15, Paul poses a question that I'm sure he's probably gotten before when delivering this awesome news of God's grace. And if you can remember way back to verse 1 of this chapter, he posed there a similar question. And I accidentally asked it as I was reading this text because it's so ingrained in my mind. There he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If you can even remember before then, back to chapter 5, Paul made the point that because of Jesus' cross work, sin now serves to magnify the grace of God. That's what his point was at the end of chapter 5. Paul says where sin increases, grace increases all the more. sound right, does it? Paul, Paul, don't you know that if you teach this, then people are going to continue in sin? Oh no, Paul says, they can't. They cannot because they've been united to Christ. And anyone united to Christ cannot live in sin. If you missed our message on our union with Christ, go back and listen to it because without a proper understanding of our union with Jesus, you are destined to misunderstand. Destined to misunderstand sanctification. But that was Paul's point there. Here, Paul makes a different point. And it's this point that he makes here that's going to be the main idea of our message this morning. Paul's opponents would question the legitimacy of his statement that he makes in verse 14 by seeking to show that if we're not under the law, but we're under grace, then we don't have to take sin seriously. If all we get is grace, grace, and more grace, then why so serious? What's the importance of striving for holiness? What's the point of engaging in a holy war? Well, for this kind of nonsense, Paul says in verse 16, Do you not know? Look at it, church. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Boom. Hammer dropped. Paul makes clear to those listening that if anyone presents themselves to sin, do not be fooled. You are a slave to sin. Let that sink in, church. Because as people who still sin, this is a very hard truth. And this is why, this is why we must, we must have a complete understanding of the doctrine of sanctification so that we don't end up in a ditch. 
Two weeks ago, David closed his message with the story of a slave who had been set free. Do you remember this? But the slave couldn't reckon his freedom. And he continued to live like a slave even though he was free. So the question becomes, is he free or is he still a slave? Answer, yes. Yes, he is free. And yes, he is still a slave. Some of you might be really angry at this answer and say, stop it, stop it. Can't, can't be both. But he is. You see, definitively, he is a free man. But in his everyday experience, he is a slave. Church, how sad is that? Yet the truth is that many of us this morning are living in that very same way. We have been freed from sin. It no longer has any power, control over us, and yet we live as if it is our master, as if it does control us. And many of us are living in this way because we have not put Carlton's message into practice. We are not diligently fighting a holy war. So we live in defeat to sin and vice that corrupts our minds, deteriorates our bodies, and sickens our families. When victory over sin has already been pronounced, God help us. Church, what you do reveals whom you serve. You cannot say that you serve God, yet habitually sin against Him. Your actions speak louder than your professions. It's true. Jesus asked the question in Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, yet not do what I say? The one who hears my words and does not do them is like a man who builds his house on the ground without a foundation. Church, Jesus is saying that to not obey his words is to live in a house that does not have a foundation. You're just awaiting utter ruin. Last week, we had a home group question that was asked. And the question went like this. The question was, why do we treat some sins with less caution than we treat other sins? You remember this? The answers my home group gave to this question were very convicting. But among them, there was one answer that went like this. We think that there are some sins that can be controlled. Some sins that we can keep at bay and won't cause problems that would bring major harm or shame into my life. If we're honest, we think that way, don't we? This makes no sense, but we think this way. What are we thinking? Is any amount of terminal illness acceptable? Any amount of slavery acceptable? Any amount of sin acceptable? Paul is stating this verse in this truth in verse 16. Because, church, we've been deceived. 
We have been deceived into thinking that we can serve two masters when Jesus clearly said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So you're either serving sin or you're serving God. I don't want to move away from Jesus' words in Matthew 6 too quickly. Because you do, do you know what sin he's addressing here in Matthew 6? I'll give you a clue. It's something that we conveniently don't ever talk much about in the South. But something Jesus had a whole lot to say about. Jesus said this when talking about the love of money. Church, do you know that sin desires to enslave you with the love of money? See, money's a good thing. With money, we have homes and cars and church buildings and food and education and lots and lots and lots of fun. But did you know that for many of us, our secret love of money is enslaving us? There are things you wouldn't do without blinking an eye for your job, for your income, and for yourself that you would not do for God's church, for God's people, for God's kingdom. And that's a shame. It's a shame that God has set you free and you went and enslaved yourself to this master dressed in light who calls himself successful. It's a shame. But maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's control. You worry yourself to death. Your day is filled with anxiety about what problem will be next. Your days are spent trying to fix what's broken or make sure your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted. You think that this pursuit of control will bring you freedom, but it seems the more and more control you have, the less and less you feel in control, leading you on a vicious cycle. Church, do you know that sin desires to enslave you with the pursuit of control that dresses itself as light and goes by the name of diligence. And the list could go on and on. Our culture is saturated with pursuits that seem good, yet sin is enslaving us through them. Listen to Paul Tripp on this point. He says, sin is an evil monster masquerading as your best friend. Sin is a slave trader masquerading as your liberator. Sin is a grim reaper masquerading as a life giver. Sin is destruction masquerading as fulfillment. Sin is darkness masquerading as light. Sin is foolishness masquerading as wisdom. Sin is disease masquerading as a cure. And sin is a trap masquerading as a gift. You see, for most people in this room this morning, sin is not going to come to you through sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
Although sin can definitely be found in those places. Rather, sin is going to enslave you through a noble pursuit. If you just take a moment and get on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, you'll realize that we are people obsessed with pursuits. Not only are we people of pursuits, but many of us have become preachers of these pursuits. If you're watching the former Navy SEAL, David Goggins, he's preaching the pursuit of discipline. It's discipline that's going to unlock all kinds of new levels for you. If you're watching Joe Rogan, then it's the pursuit of free thought, unhindered by any cultural or political influences. For to be a free thinker is to have power. If you're watching one of the hundreds of finance gurus, then it's the pursuit of wealth because more money will solve all your problems and make your life stable. Or if you're watching the thousands and thousands of women who are providing tips, tricks, and secrets to the latest fashion trends, home decor, and parental philosophies, then it's your pursuit of having everything in your life just the way you want it, which promises you peace of mind and happiness. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that these things are bad in and of themselves. Just like Jesus never said money was evil. Money, discipline, control, clearer thinking, and beautiful homes, clothing, and kids are not bad things. Rather, we turn them bad when we make them ultimate, church. And you might ask, well, how do I know if I've turned something into sin by making it ultimate in my life? Ask yourself this question. Do you pursue said thing with greater zeal and intentionality than you pursue righteousness, which leads to holiness? And if you answer yes, then you might be a slave for that said thing. And I know the objections. Corey, 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 righteousness is good and we should pursue it. But you know, righteousness is not everything. We still have to earn wages and provide for our families. Well, that's very true. You do. Which is why Jesus goes on in Matthew 6 to tell you what? Don't be anxious about these things. Oh, you of little faith, he says. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But listen to his words, church. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's a wonderful promise. You know, it's, it's that promise that broke me, allowed me, freed me up to do what God called me to in life. I was so worried, so worried what I was going to have, what I needed. So worried I had to go out and get it. So worried. So, so I, and the Lord said, stop. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. I'll give you everything you need. For 12 years now, I've not found him to be a liar. Church, we are not meant to live like the rest of this world. We have a Father who has provided and promises to provide all that we will need. 
No. No, righteousness is not everything, but it is the main thing. Listen to me, young people, old people alike. More than your education, more than your life experiences, more than your professional expertise, it's the thing. Righteousness is the thing that is going to shape and alter everything else you do infinitely more than any other variable in your life. It's true. You see, what awaits us in the pursuit of righteousness is more and more freedom from the sins of our flesh and the vices of this world. Church, if you could only fathom, if you and I both could only fathom how sin has so stained and completely altered our understanding of what's real and reality, we'd be shocked. If you could only fathom how sin alters your life and the life of others, You'd be blown away. And this is why Paul is making clear to us that when we present ourselves to sin, we are enslaving ourselves to an evil master that is going to take us further than we wanted to go, cost us more than we wanted to pay, and keep us longer than we intended on staying. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin or which leads to death or, or of obedience. Obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now Paul brings in the positive side of this equation. As those who are no longer under law but under grace, church, we can choose to obey God. This is because the grace that has been given to you and me is not merely forgiveness grace. Yes, it forgives my past, present, and future sins. But this grace also empowers me to live in obedience to God. It empowers you to live in obedience to God. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. <laughs> this is a lot to unpack. Listen to this. Paul says here that we have been obedient, we have become obedient from the heart. That's an important phrase. Obedient from the heart. You see, the Christian life should be one that is characterized by heart-level obedience. Heart-level. Don't miss that. Heart-level obedience is not merely external compliance. When I worked for the IMB, one of the vice presidents there who was over all the 5,000 missionaries on the field used to say this little phrase. He said, well, I know y'all want us to do this, um, and on this issue, I can probably get you compliance, but I can't get you buy-in. Get what he means there? Right? Heart-level obedience is buy-in. So, so let me go even deeper. What's the difference between heart-level obedience and mere externality compliance? Well, for starters, um, heart-level obedience does not come overnight. Your heart will not be changed overnight. You see, if someone tells me to stop being angry with my wife, I can make that change overnight. I'll just need a good definition of what she or they feel is anger, 
Like, just tell me, what does that mean? What, what does anger look like? And then I'll abstain from those particular things. Is it raising my voice? Is it saying these words? You, you hear what I'm saying? This is much like when the lawyer of Luke 10 asked Jesus to define, who is my neighbor? If he understands what's externally required, then he feels confident he can meet that standard. But church, that's not obedience from the heart. Obedience from the heart, don't miss this, obedience from the heart is greater and greater conformity to the very heart of Jesus. While at the same time characterized by greater and greater joy in Jesus. Let me go further. If your relationship with Jesus, don't miss this, if your relationship with Jesus is not creating a love and delight for God's law, then you've got something wrong with you. Ooh, is that a shift? Think back to what I mentioned earlier about the first use of the law. When we were outside of Christ, the law condemned us. And the very best it could do as far as a positive effect on us was found in the second use of the law, which is to restrain evil in the world. So the first use of the law is to condemn. Second use of the law is to restrain our evil. So that's all the law could have the effect on you as an unbeliever. Condemn, restrain you from doing what you wanted to do, right? Be as bad as you wanted to be. Well, here's the thing. If this is your only interaction with God's law, then it will be impossible for you to ever resonate with the blessed man in Psalm 1 whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You won't be able to resonate with that because that's not how you're going to feel when your interaction with the law is condemnation and restraining you. You understand? This is why many people today find God's law exhausting, a buzzkill, almost like a wet blanket. And this is why many of us, if we're being honest, stay away from God's law. We stay away from deep consideration, how it might call us away from certain things that we're doing and into different ways of doing things. This is our thinking here. Eh, I mean, if I start considering and, and start connecting all these dots, I'm probably not going to be able to do, eh, and I really love, eh. We were discussing this this week on the podcast, which I would commend to you, about how we all have FOMO when it comes to pursuing righteousness. Seriously, we, we all have FOMO. I mean, if, especially if you're in college. If you're in college in here, let's just be honest. You got FOMO when it comes to pursuing righteousness. Now, for those of you that you're like, what is FOMO? What is FOMO? FOMO is fear of missing out. It's an acronym for fear of missing out. Here's the line of reasoning. If I'm obedient to God's law, what all will I miss out on? Won't there be lots of fun and exciting and thrilling adventures that I won't get to take part in if I'm wholly obedient to God? Answer, just the opposite. Just the opposite. Listen to me closely because I'm not, I'm not putting out hoodoo here. Listen, 
When we choose to not obey God, we miss out on the extraordinary things that our awesome and all-knowing God created us to enjoy. We miss out on them. In the words of C.S. Lewis, we are choosing mud pies in the slums over a vacation at the sea. But tell that to somebody who's never been to the sea. This is the, one of the most frustrating things about being a parent. Is, is when there's something new and incredible I want to introduce my children to. I want them to experience this. Yet they're completely content without it. Completely content. Much like the slaves, the Israelite slaves living in Egypt. Oh, I'm just content. I'm just content. And we, we're like that, aren't we? We're, we're so content. So content with just a little obedience. Content with pursuing the wildly fascinating mud pies that we see the world pursuing. Mercy on us. But the Apostle Paul is calling us, God's word is calling us to wholly present ourselves as slaves to righteousness, which will lead to sanctification, also known as holiness. And here's the key. This is the key. This is the key that unlocks it. This is why it's not hoodoo. You ready? According to Calvin, the third use of the law is to guide born-again believers into all the good works that their good God has prepared for them. I'm going I'm to say that again. Listen to this. Church, say it a bit of a different way. Your purpose, your purpose in life, your destiny, the deciding factor whether your life will have ultimate meaning or be ultimately forgotten is hinging on your conformity to God's law, which will lead you into all that God desires you have. Hear this? If you let that sink, that's mind-boggling. Because it's totally and completely in contrast to how we so typically think. Sin's deceived us. You see, the deceiver has given us these ridiculous notions that God's law is drab, boring, and will lead to an Amish-like lifestyle if taken with the utmost seriousness. But this could not be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth. Obedience to God's law will bring forth good fruit that will nourish you and others through the harshest seasons. Obedience to God's law will bring forth gladness, joy, and freedom that this world cannot fabricate. Obedience to God's law will extend God's glory to the nations that those in the most dark and destitute places might hear and believe the good news of Jesus. Obedience to God's law will bring forth mercy and justice in our community and in our country. Obedience to God's law will right marriages and bless children. Obedience to God's law will leave a legacy for generations. That's what obedience to God's law will do. Our God is making all things new. 
by redeeming a people for himself and making them holy, truly holy in their homes, in their public places and private spaces. It's this holy character. It's this holy character that he's forming in us by giving us this new nature. And as this holy character is formed, we will see glimpses, church, of shalom. We'll see glimpses of the peace that our heart so desires. Church, when you and I begin believing what I'm saying, then we will grow in obedience from the heart and we will join in with the psalmist and sing loudly that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is what? Great reward. Church, we should long for that reward. You see, sin promises reward. But in verse 19, Paul says it just leads to more lawlessness. It's like the drug dealer. That come, he's completely fine with giving you your first few hits for free. Why? Because he knows you'll be back. Church, don't live your few years that you have on this earth enslaved to sin. But as Paul says in this section, present your members as slaves to righteousness, which will lead to sanctification. Before I close, um, I want to admonish you. I want to admonish you to do this specifically, in a specific way. And I would say that this is not a suggestion from your pastor. And I don't do this often, but I'm looking at you, and I'm exercising my pastoral authority, and I'm saying... Don't do this alone. It's not safe nor wise for you to be the sole authority on whether or not your members are being used for sin or for righteousness. Do this with one another. Because we've already seen, church, sin is incredibly deceptive. It's incredibly deceptive. Don't go with this alone. Now here's the fear. Let me just get the fear out there. There's many of us that care more about being right than we do about being healthy. We worry that opening up and being transparent 
about the most private parts of our lives will lead to being wrongly judged or misunderstood. This is a ploy of the enemy to keep you in bondage. The body of Christ at Grace Fellowship loves one another. Here's the thing. Our love for one another can only reach to the depths that we know one another. You want great love at Grace Fellowship from people? Open yourself up. So let me be clear about what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to begin opening up to others about the way you spend your free time. Open up to others about the things you look at on your phone when no one else is around. Open up to others about what you allow yourself to be entertained by. Open up to others about what you spend money on. In fact, seeing as how Jesus speaks so much on this subject in particular, open up your entire financial portfolio to someone else. Open up to others about work rhythms and habits. Open up to others about what you eat and your exercise routine. Open up to others about the way you use alcohol. Open up to others about the relationships you have with non-believers. Open up to others about what you and your spouse argue about. Open up to others about what makes you angry, what you fear, and the thoughts you think. Open up to others about the frustrations you feel. Now trust me, I know this sounds crazy, and I'm sure probably got something to say to me after service about all this. But let me end with an analogy. When you go to your doctor, do you keep anything from your physician? Are there any procedures, tests, labs that you reject solely because they're too intimate, too invasive, too personal? Probably not. And the reason why is because you care about your physical health. And if that means a doctor seeing your most private parts and your most vulnerable areas, then so be it. Because your health matters. Church, infinitely more than your physical health, your spiritual health matters. Do not think that self-diagnosis and self-prognosis will suffice in this war. Make sure your master is Jesus by inviting others into your sanctification project. Amen? I pray we'll be obedient to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and thank you for these words, God. Thank you for how you've worked your word in me and others this week. God, thank you the, the ongoing work that you promised to continue doing in us. You're not going to give up on us, God. <laughs> you're so patient and you're so kind. Father, I pray today for all the people who heard your word and want to be obedient to your word, God. Give them grace. Fill them with your spirit that they may obey. 
Father, I pray for the people who feel like they don't need this word today. God, would you please wake them up and give them spiritual sight? Father, I pray that we will be a holy people just as you are holy. And in our holiness, God, your glory will fill this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.